forever. Dog. And I got super excited because any of the, these roles that I do, even if they're just like a monster for a few seconds here or there, have to find that humanity so we can all relate because no villain sees what they're actually doing as being a villain. Welcome to Household Faces, the podcast where a character actor interviews other character actors. I'm your host, John Ross Bowie. You might know me from Speechless, The Big Bang Theory, or my role as the veterinarian in the indie horror film Pet. Our guest this episode is Derek Mears, a former stuntman, an improviser, an actor. He has played Jason Voorhees. And I mean, that's a whole podcast episode right there. But it's October. It's Halloween. We're going to talk about his work on Swamp Thing, Alita Battle Angel, a terrific episode of Community, his work doing improv, and maybe a little D&D comes up. Listen, I gotta be me. Please welcome Derek Mears. Derek, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much for having me, John. I'm having fun already. I'm glad to hear that. Um, uh, and, and we have only <laughs> just begun. You grew up in Bakersfield. Is that correct? Correct. Uh, and correct. you you, you kind of cut your teeth doing improv up there. And I, I did a little research. There's actually a, a fairly thriving improv scene in Bakersfield. When I was in high school and uh, the drama class, we had a field trip to go see this show called Comedy Sports, which is an improv comedy show. And it was in the back of a video store. They had this giant open area, which is crazy. And I'm like, what? I don't want it. That sounds dumb. I'm like, oh, okay, fine. Typical high school kid. Witness all the show. And I'm like, it's all unscripted. They make it up on the spot. <laughs> yeah, right. And I watched the show and it was as if I were seeing an absolute magic trick happened in front of my eyes. I'm like, there's no way that's completely improvised. And I fell in love with it. At the time, they had classes that you could take uh, to learn the games. It wasn't like it is now, uh, like in some of the places in Los Angeles where you take classes and you perform, you learn, you know, and go up levels. It was like, hey, do you want to learn improv games? And so I took that and had so much fun with my friends. And the owners are like, hey, uh, we like what you're doing. Do you want to join, you know, the main company? And I'm like, well, I'm only 17 and everybody's an adult. This is cuckoo. And that was kind of the start of so many things. Like I just kept running with that and my whole life became about improv. That's uh, uh, amazing. I, I got it. I, I... I, I love, I've, I've been looking, I did sort of a, a low-key Derek Mears uh, film festival over the past uh, week and a half or so, and it's been- Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, it's funny, everyone apologizes when I say that. No, <laughs> there's no need, there's no need. This is this is kind of my job, and it was actually really, really fun. Um, I don't think you're given the credit for being a, as funny as you can be all the time, but I mean, <laughs> who among us is? What, what did you get out of- um, what have you taken from improv and brought to scripted work? Uh, just the surrendering to creativity, where it's okay to take risk. If something goes wrong, that's a gift. Like there's a moment from that that's that on that particular timeline of whatever we chose, what some people think is possibly an error, it could be the best thing in the entire world. But also the the fun of surrendering to whatever I always get so perplexed where, where comedy comes from and how you're connecting two dots in a millisecond. And I'm like, where does that come from? It just kind of happens. So it's kind of surrendering to whatever you believe in, universe, uh, God, whatever 
creative energy it is that just kind of channels through you and comes out. So it's also takes out that, that mentality of, of, um, it's all about me where I'm like, Oh, we're a team, man. When you work on a TV show or a film job, I like to say, or, or I'll do interviews and they'll say, Oh, Derek, you did this, or you did that. I go, Hey, I appreciate the attention, but you have to understand we're, we're a team, each different department. It's like, you're trying to make a rainbow in each different department. We all have our creative mediums and they're a different color. I'm just blue. You can't make a rainbow with just blue and we all come together. And that's the, how make, it makes it so special, whatever we do. That's really, that's, that's beautiful. I always am struck by, I'm asked often why, uh, why nerds are drawn to improv. And I always say it's because improv, when it's going well, will make you believe in the force. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That is brilliant. I am on board with you. You know, there's just something of like when you like, how are these eight people all agree that this was the path we had to take at this moment? And we somehow all did. It's incredible. And as long as we're talking about nerds, uh, you let slip as we were setting up that you've got a couple of D&D campaigns going on. <laughs> I do. I do. It's now, different... did, did this start during the pandemic or are you a, are you a lifelong uh, a lifelong player? It's so weird, John. Uh, back when I was a kid in, I think, junior high or, yeah, I think junior high is when it all started. This is kind of what Dungeons and Dragons is what, or role-playing in general, is what sent me on the acting path. Oh. Where at one point, my mom was like, like what do you think you want to be when you grow up? Or what do you want to do? I go, I just want to play with my friends. I don't need to be rich or famous. I go, how do I make a career just playing pretend with my friends and acting was the most thing, the, the closest thing. And so what I would play all the different role-playing games growing up and I went, oh, it's the same thing. We're just kids playing, but we have agreed upon rules. And on the acting side, I learned later on going, even if you're doing a dramatic scene or a scene, you know, where you're bawling and losing your mind, uh, having, you know, manic episodes, it's the same thing. It's a, it's just serious play. And we all agree upon the same reality. And it's just, I, I love it. So off and on, I would play, uh, 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 you know, growing up uh, and I would talk about it in interviews and people would be like, before it was cool again. <laughs> They're like, what? You're like a D&D guy? Like, so you approach it how? Uh, but now it's just been great because of the whole resurgence. Everyone's enjoying it. And I have so many new friends that I get to play with. And uh, especially during the pandemic, it gives me a release, a way to perform because I'm so used to performing every weekend somewhere doing improv. And so now it's that like, oh, I can do it, you know, virtually over uh, the Internet. It's been uh, I got back into it a couple of years ago. I started DMing for my son and a couple of his friends doing just like a really my son. My son's pretty young. He's 11. Um, so I was doing like a very truncated basic, basic version of it. Mm -hmm. um, but I was starting to have so much fun that when uh, another middle-aged man called me up and said, hey, join my my campaign. We're, <laughs> we're all vaccinated. It's in the it's in the house behind my house. I was like, yeah, yeah. that's I'm in 100%. Let's let's do this. Um, it has been um, and I haven't even thought about it. I thought of it as just sort of my you know, this is how this is the shape my midlife crisis is taking. I didn't <laughs> I didn't connect it to acting, although it's completely acting. It's storytelling. I I there's you know, we're making each other laugh. We're we're um, we're bringing each other into this. We're all agreeing upon these set rules. They're incredibly connected. It, it's so wild. It's so wild. And it's been so satisfying, particularly during this this year and a half of disconnection 
to have this uh, this newfound bond with uh, with people. Um, I also refuse, you know, I mean, I don't know how this is that different from a bunch of guys sitting around playing poker, except I get to do voices occasionally. It's just, <laughs> it For sure. I mean, I wish they me. would. I wish they would teach it in, or allow it in schools because I, you learn so like, with that improv and acting, they're, they're all intertwined because you can learn so many different life lessons. I learned early on going, oh, we all have strengths in different areas, you know, and we need to work together as a team. Like my life philosophy is no one's better than anybody else. We all have skills in different areas and you respect everybody until they give you a reason not to. So even where it comes to like, oh, you got maybe like the analogy, maybe this person has a little more points in intelligence, but this this person balances out because they have more uh, in charisma or they have more in their, their strength. And so we, we work together to make things better as a team. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. At what point did your strengths take you down to Los Angeles or over, I guess, over to south southwest to Los Angeles? From it was that 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 big move uh, uh, where I was going to college uh, and uh, majoring in uh, in theater. And I was also that guy in in college where I'm like, I, I didn't take college too seriously. I, I had like a, a scholarship, but I was like, yeah, uh, should I turn in my uh, English paper or do I memorize my lines for the play? Well, no one's going to see if I don't do my English paper, but everyone will know if I'm not memorized. I want to focus on that. But I was also because- Where did you go? Uh, I was going, uh, I started off at Bakersfield, uh, the community college there. Then I went to Cal State Bakersfield. And then an opportunity, I'm like- I, I kept trying to save up money to to be able to go to Los Angeles and try that. I, I remember I worked in a pizza parlor and I would mop floors and look at the TV and I'm like, someday, someday, that I, I, I just want an opportunity because every weekend, that's what I lived for was performing. I would do two shows a night uh, for comedy sports and it was just so much fun. I'm like, I think I can do this on the main scale. I don't know. But I moved down to Los Angeles, took this giant risk. And um, I, I, uh, my friend, um, uh, uh, Jeff Davis, uh, uh, from Whose Lines It Anyways. I know Jeff. Uh, yeah, uh, I've worked with yeah, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, sure. Super good. Fr- I knew him from, because comedy sports is a big natural uh, uh, national franchise where at, backing up at one point when I was 17, I was, uh, they, every year they would have a giant national tournament in Milwaukee where it was originally created. And they would send their top four players or whoever, and they would have like, uh, they presented it, comedy sports was um, presented as a kind of a, a improv sport, or they'd have like Bakersfield versus Houston or Milwaukee versus Madison. So you had different teams, but it was all for the show of the game. But there was hundreds and hundreds of people, and there's a small group of us uh, who just became friends because we liked each other. And it's such a wild thing at 17, every year going back to this uh, this tournament uh, or convention in a sense, that they're that small group of us have all now moved out to Los Angeles and everyone's rocking and rolling in whatever aspect of the industry they they want. Like it's like Chris Tallman, Rob Schraub, Dan Harmon, uh, Jeff Davis. I'm not trying to drop names. I'm just saying they how wild and blown away. I'm not egotistical that way. I'm just wild and blown away no, that- Drop away, drop away. That's fine. <laughs> that we're all like, man, someday this would be cool. And then 
moving here and seeing everyone just blow up. And I'm like, this is so cool. I never, I'm never anyone's friends to ride coattails for, for work and like that. But I get so excited when I see someone who is a solid human being who's worked so hard. And I know their ups and downs for, uh, for what they're trying to accomplish as an artist. And then when you see the world love what they're doing, it just makes me so happy. But long story short, I, I moved to Los Angeles and my, uh, um, I knew Jeff Davis and the owner of the LA comedy sports troupe was like, Hey, we're here. You're moving here. Normally people have to kind of have to work out with the team and figure out, you know, if they're going to fit in or not. But I just want to offer, uh, if you want to be full time with the main company right off the bat, I'm like, what? Oh my God, are you serious? Yes. But then again, Jeff, the next step was, uh, I'm like, Oh, I need to figure out a job here. And uh, Jeff worked at Universal Studios. And at the time, it was so wild because Jeff worked as a, a walk around Frankenstein. Sure. And uh, 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 he's like, hey, they're doing this show called, there's a show here called Wild 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 West Stunt Show, where it's comedy, but it's also very physical. I, like, I think you'd be really good at this. But at the time, I was, uh, uh, I'm kind of known now for being like, I'm like 6'5", bald. I look like a murder, I have a face full of murder. Uh, <laughs> but then uh, I was very thin and like, I kind of had like the deliverance body, I would say. <laughs> Self-negative. And uh, uh, it was, they would take, uh, uh, I got hired full-time but they would take actors and cross-train them to do stunts and they would take stunt people and cross-train them to act and i was an actor learning to do the stunts for that show and a lot of the guys i know i'm performing with like they look like human action figures they had like you know six-pack abs like macho guys and so uh jeff was the one who suggested that i did i do this and again it was so wild because the, the friend group like Wayne Brady at the time was doing uh, the Blues Brothers show, and it's so wild seeing everybody blow up from that. Uh, it's, it's it's cuckoo town. Um, I'm sorry. Also, I, I'll go on tangents, and I will just run out the mouth over and no, over. No, we again. welcome we welcome tangents. And um, I was I was going to ask anyway how you managed to transition from acting into stunts and back again. Um, and it makes perfect sense. I know I know plenty of people who cut their teeth at Universal. Um, oh, that's awesome. Uh, uh, it's a um, and my wife actually cut her teeth doing um, streetmosphere in Orlando at MGM. No way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot of the, comedy the same thing. Yeah. yeah, a lot of those comedy sports guys. So is this the comedy sports theater that w was um, used to be in Hollywood just off Melrose? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, I, I, well, it was yeah off Melrose. Before that, we were at the old, um, at the time, the where it was UCB on Franklin. Uh, oh, really? At yes. the uh, Tamarind? The Tamarind Theater, yeah. And UCB came in after uh, uh, we exited to a different location. Uh, I, I don't do comedy sports anymore, but at the time, like, just what a great life experience. What is it about Derek Mears that he keeps getting kind of catapulted to the front of the line? I'm noticing this trend in your first like 10 years of your career. High school, you're yanked out of high school to to be on the main stage. You're you're bumped ahead of a bunch of people at comedy sports. What is it that that and you can I'm 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 pimping you into a brag right now. <laughs> oh, so feel funny. free. You know, I I really I'm I'm not sure. I think it might maybe it's the the playful aspect of things because with improv and dungeon and dragons i've learned to be play and be a team player and i i like my mindset when i when i meet with uh like producers for shows or whatnot i i try to explain that that, that whole team aspect and to go i'm here to help out like it's not all about me it's not about the ego it's about it's not even about you guys it's about the story and how we can best service the story 
that we can. And I've actually gotten in trouble sometimes with my my reps in the past where I'll be at a producer session and the producers are like, um, Derek, I'm going I'm to stop you there. Um, are, are you pitching somebody else for the role that you're up for? And I go, yeah, I'm not going to brag, but I, I feel that I'm going to work. And, you know, it's kind of a works like a buffet table where it's like, if you want the best for this position right now, when I'm perfectly right for something else, then it's my time. But I, I can't control it. So I kind of take that the stress out of auditioning and, and whatnot where I'm like, it's not up to me. If it's mine, it's mine. Like whoever services the story best. Like if it's not me, get my friend, like who's fantastic. So it's just that kind of surrendering and that that team mentality. So maybe that, I don't know. That's a really healthy attitude. What kind of, um, I'm going to back up real quick. What kind of theater were you doing in college? What plays were you doing? Oh my God. I did a bunch of musical theater. Uh, uh, do you sing? Do Shakespeare. Not, not so much now. But it okay. was funny at the time, the one that sticks out to me, I remember I was cast as Burger in Hair. Uh, yeah, uh, okay, yeah. Yeah, and doing Hair in uh, very conservative Bakersfield was very interesting uh, because of the nude scenes. And I was going to say, did you do the nude scene that closes Act One? We absolutely did. And I just remember that moment. I don't think I've ever shared this before, where at the time, my my high school loves, uh, 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 my first love, uh, her, her mother was in the audience watching and there was one part where it wasn't a very long nude scene where it flashed the lights and we were all up nude and then it went to black and I remember going okay here we go and I look out in the audience and the one person I make eye contact with is her and I remember seeing her eyes looking at me smile neutral and then her eyes dropping down to my waist and looking up and smiling and I was like oh my god so but also the other fun thing is uh, on a side note being that I did hair uh, uh, as a background I have a disorder called alopecia so my hair falls out uh, and uh, you know at times uh, I now I, as an adult I can um, grow hair on my my uh, like a goatee and that's it I, you've got a little bit of stubble yeah, uh, this totally. morning uh, we're not we're not a visual medium but I, I was struck by that earlier because I read about the alopecia and I was yeah, like yeah. oh but he's got chin hair so yeah. so many of my effects friends are going hey who made that chin piece for you that looks really real <laughs> I'm like shut up it's genetics it's what happens but at the time, you know, I'm I'm bald, and I since I don't grow hair, and I'm though I'm doing hair, I'm wearing a giant wig the entire time. So it's kind of a weird, ironic, you know, situation. Um. Uh. Wow. Thank you for for so much of your candor just now. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Tim Heidecker here. We have a brand new Office Hours that just came out of the oven. We've got legendary psych rocker Ty Siegel. And Doug is back from down under. G'day. G'day. And his mommy came with him. Mommy and Gary Lusenhop are here, too. Alicia let me know that she finished the White Album, has thoughts on that. So much more on this legendary episode of Office Hours. Find us on your podcast app of choice or watch us on YouTube at youtube.com slash office hours live. Who are the animals? Because I don't smell them. So tell me a little bit about working at Universal. Uh, it's a, a great 
gig for people oh. in their 20s or even in their early 30s. I, I know people who are who have moved back to Orlando to work in theme parks because it's it's steady work. There's benefits. You work yeah. with your friends. No two shows are the same. Um, what was it? What was that that period like for you? It was honestly, I, I miss it. It's it was a dream because it was, you know, you had steady work. Uh, and you would go in and you would perform with your friends. And we kind of had the this really loose crew where we would we weren't supposed to improvise, but we'd improvise an incredible amount, but it would work. And the audience would just have a blast. And it was the most fun. But the, the, the problem at some point, it gets where you become so complacent because you're happy. You know, you're getting a paycheck. You're performing with your friends. At, you know, you're doing shows for like 4,000 people per show. You get addicted to that that live, you know, that live theater opiate where like you're throwing that energy volley to the crowd. There, 4,000 people are throwing it back to you. And that, that high wire act of times where I'm like, yeah, I'm going to improvise this part and see what happens because just let's throw that risk. And you could, that risk of death could happen at any time uh, on stage. And I just, I got addicted to it. What was, here's a question that has never really been adequately answered for me. How do you train somebody for stunt work? How do you, is it, is it a question of, of, I guess it's just a question of learning how to fall and not injure yourself. But did you have like fight choreography and stuff like that? Yeah, there's a lot of different specializations that people can go into. Um, a lot of times, the number one thing I would say is just body control. Because when you, a lot of times when you see like a stunt audition, like for Universal, or sometimes if uh, the stunt coordinator doesn't know people, uh, uh, new performers, or they want to meet new performers, um, they'll have an audition and they'll talk to people going to work through a fight scene or, you know, different falls, but to see where they are. But th the main thing is to see who listens, who can listen, control their body and is able to be trained because guys will come in and they're, they get so amped up and like, yeah, yeah, because they're not professional stunt people and they're like they're wanting to get in and they get amped for the fights and they're stiff and like they're not doing what the coordinator asked them to do they're trying to impress and like get the, the adrenaline rush and losing their mind they'll accidentally hit people they won't even know they hit somebody but the uh the training um on my end uh because we were trained for the stunts for the show but a lot of the guys on the show who are pals of mine their goal was to be a professional stuntman and okay. uh Backing up to, to continuing on with my story, uh, Jeff Davis again recommended uh, that I go to this class uh, uh, called Sam Christensen Studios, where it's basically Sam, uh, who's passed away, uh, who's an amazing man. He takes the teachings of uh, Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung and puts them together. And he talks about that this. Sam's the reason I have a career in general, where we have certain essences uh, that we can't shake. And so everybody's not right for every role. And you, he helps you define kind of or map out who you are as a human. And I learned like, he'll do things like, you know, through different processes to have like seven different alliterative phrases to describe who you are and different aspects of your personality. Like to be personal, like some of mine are um, one of mine is uh, I've been many places, but I've never forgotten where I've come from. Uh, superhero in search of superheroine for a meaningful exchange of superpowers. Uh, I have this gentle, tough guy thing working like a Swiss watch. So they're just kind of like, you can change it how you want to, to, but there's things like we know how we are when we walk into a room for, uh, when we meet people, 
uh, uh, but we're not we're not sure how we're perceived. So with this, I know it, it changed my life for the bad guy stuff. I kept getting tough from people. Uh, uh, like, oh, he's a, he's a tough essence. So I went, wait a second. If I worked out and trained, I could be the big bad guy in TV and film. And continuing before, when I had, I was talking about having deliverance body, I started hooking up with uh, different stunt friends and learning how to eat right, how to train. And they would go, hey, we're going to go learn air ram or do some wire work or learn some martial art fight scenes. Do you, do you want to- Wait, wait, What's air ram? Uh, an air ram is like a, 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 like a, a a pressurized catapult. Like when you remember the old 18 days when you see someone's like an explosion goes off behind some boxes and a guy flips in the air. So gotcha. um that's so, an, that's an air ram. Okay, yeah. great. Yes. <laughs> so you learn okay. different skill sets that way. And that is why the, the, the our, our younger listeners don't remember how often people used to fly through the air in 80s television. Oh, every episode. <laughs> that or the uh, the giant boulder or box. You'd always look for the, the stack of boxes somewhere going, someone's going to go into those. Here we go. <laughs> um, but continuing the uh, 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 with the, the the Sam's work, it's so amazing. This, this I, I recommend it highly to. Uh, I think this, the the classes are still taking place, but I recommend it to so many to everybody to to do it. But all our friend group went and take uh, took the class, and it says so much about mythology and how it affects you know what we're doing as actors because with TV and film we're telling modern myths, and once you find your archetype. It's so much easier to kind of fit in that groove and how to 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 play things, and it gives you. I've even got to the point now. I've got an actory like I've gone to. Uh, uh, if I need someone to know me in a short amount of time, I I, I, I was at a producer session a, a while ago where I brought in, I printed up like my, my seven essences. I go, look, I know this sounds so actory. I go, performance is one thing, but when you sign somebody for a show and you're going to be working six months in Antarctica. And you're locked in a box with them, trying to stay warm. Who are they? Like, what do you like? What if they're a cuckoo person and like you want to murder them after the first week? So this is me, and I would put it on the table. And one of the auditions, um, it actually happened for Swamp Thing, uh, which is really cool. In the room, uh, uh, I got notes on the character when I was auditioning. And at one point, they go, "Hey, on your essences, it says this. Like the the superhero in, in search for a, a, for meaningful exchange, you know, whatever." He goes, "Can on this line, can you lean more into that aspect of your personality for this?" And I go, I "Increase it like by fifteen percent or so." And I'm like, "Okay." So I went and did it, but it also gives them, you know, like a a a, a tool to help you own in on what they're looking for. So it gives you a common. Uh, communicative uh, device. Also, I'm so sorry. I, I will ramble on and on about things where I'm like, what was the point I was talking about? Easy, Derek. No, no, no. This is exactly, I was going to, I was going to transition. Anyway, this is amazing. We're, we're, we're eerily in sync. I was going to transition into auditions and, and your personal techniques. I want to back up from Swamp <laughs> Thing though. <laughs> How do you audition for something like Jason Voorhees? <laughs> I just uh, I just watched it again the other day mm -hmm. and I know you did a lot of work on that character yeah. and it shows but I want to I want to get down to brass tacks which is what this podcast is about. How do you audition for something like Jason Voorhees? So funny that you say that uh because when I went in to meet with Lisa Fields for the role uh uh she was behind her desk and Lisa is just a a treat of a human being. I love Lisa. She was like, "Look," she goes, "I'm going to be honest with you." I'm not sure how to read you for, for Jason because there's no dialogue for this character. Uh, at the time, they had like a, 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 a 
on the back wall, there was a tape line and it had like a, a, a name on it. And there's a second tape line, a different color, a different name on it. And I go, what is this? She goes, oh, we want you to stand by that because that's Jared Padalecki's height. And we want so, you know, we wanted Jared to be, because he's, He's like a, a six, four, six four, and I'm six there, five. Yeah. They wanted someone who is comparable to be able to fight Jason. So you're like, oh, that's a possibility. She goes, so I don't know how to audition you for this. And I go, well, if we're being honest, I go I, from the study that I've done. I go, language is only ten percent of communication. And I go, the, some people think you know that they call like if the, if the role requires no dialogue that. Oh, you're a body actor, or you know, I can only see out of an eyeball, so I'm gonna emote through my eyeball and like show you what I'm feeling through that. I go, that's indicated and that's bad acting. And I go, there's a weird thing that happens when you play silent characters where you approach it the same way that you would as a normal scripted character and you make your choices, but there is a sense where whatever you're doing, you have to commit so sincerely to it and trust that that energy is transferred through the mask and is captured on camera on the other side. I always pretend, even if I'm not wearing a mask, that I have a giant monitor over my head that's turned around to everybody else. So whatever it is that you're thinking, feeling, or doing, is if it's not authentic, it's gonna be read by everybody that way. And so at one point I started talking about Greek mask theory where I'm like, you take explaining what that was and going like, oh, the actor's one you know entity, the mask is a second entity, and we're putting together becoming a third entity, and they're like, you might be a little overqualified for this. I go, no, I am absolutely not. I'm a huge horror nerd and this is my favorite horror character. So uh, so that's kind of how you know I, I, I auditioned for it. And we uh, did a little bit of improv. And the craziest thing, I got a call uh, uh, either that night or the next day. I remember at the, sitting at the top of my stairs uh, of my, my house because I got the call and I was trying so hard, John, to be professional. Because I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I'm like, there, uh, oh, so, uh, but inside I was like a, uh, like a, like a 12 year old cheerleader girl who like, there's a touchdown and just got scored. I'm like, going, ah, I'm losing my mind, but I'm like, mm-hmm, so great. So we'll have the reps talk about it. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> oh my God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, well, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to the project. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. You did some work on the character and tied Jason's character his personality into his deep set childhood trauma correct which i thought was really interesting can you talk about that a little bit yeah uh so with the character uh the the mythology of the jason Voorhees, for those who i think everybody kind of knows now that's such an iconic character but being that uh the story is that you know he drowned as a child uh, and the camp counselors who weren't watching or were supposed to be watching him uh, didn't watch him. He died. He comes back later on and murders uh, a bunch of uh, counselors for revenge. And it becomes a, a parable of don't drink, uh, don't do drugs or have sex uh, underage in the in the woods. But um, uh, the 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 detail of the mythology is that I think when he was like I'm trying to remember what the age was like five, six or seven, seven or eight. Uh, he saw his mother get murdered in front of him, though she's batshit crazy. Uh, I went along the lines and did a lot of research on child psychology, thinking like, what is the developmental process or what are they, uh, what part is that child experiencing? And I learned that that was the, when you start to learn, a child starts to learn about, you start putting child into to group activities like sports or something as a team with other people. So when this child never had that that kind of human integration, his only source 
of love has been from his mother because he's been he's disfigured and he's an outcast from society. And that one source of love is taken away from you, even though it's not right. And she's a crazy batshit murderer. Uh, I started going down the rabbit hole of exploring what does that mean if you're a child of that age to live by yourself in the woods and to survive? Like, what? How do you? I started doing um, research on uh, uh, loneliness and learning how, as human beings, we're pack animals and like different, like soldiers who are separated from their platoons, you know, on, on missions or whatever. And the, the the mentality, the psychosis behind of being by yourself and trying to survive. Because I was really trying, I was very lucky because the writers this time around for the character for the 2009 reboot of Friday the 13th, uh, they, when they, talk to me about the character. They go, look, this time around, Jason's been more of an entity or a presence before, but this is like, we all watch the show to watch Jason. So we've written, we've written him as more of a survivalist and a character. And I got super excited because any of the, these roles that I do, even if they're just like a monster for a few seconds here or there, you have to find that humanity so we can all relate because no villain sees what they're actually doing as being a villain. So the last part of this, my mentality with Jason was, oh, when these kids come into his his zone, his area where he lives, they're the ones that are encroaching on him. And also, it's almost like a Vietnam PTSD flashback where these are the actual ones who killed my mother and have taken my love from me. So you have that, like, as it, as it just happened. So you have this emotional release and you focus that emotion and anger and torment on these kids because he's right about it. Uh, or the situation, though it's not right to, to murder people, of course, that that's never encouraging. Let the let the <laughs> record show that our podcast does not endorse murder. <laughs> I love it. But it's that that energy where I, I explain to people we have all have this emotional keyboard. And like if I were like to kick your puppy that's next to you or like, you know, push your wife against the wall you're going to have an emotional visceral re like a reaction to that and to capture that emotional reaction and aim that energy that we have and release it somewhere else. I kept talking about with the director going, you, there has to be that energy of aggression or it's not going to be, there's, there's going to be no threat there. So it heightens what everyone else's performance. Well, it's interesting because I, I, as I said, I just rewatched it and I'd seen it when it first came out. I too am a, a big horror oh. nerd. Um, so I'd seen it when it first came out, but what, what struck me this time was, um, amazing cast, by the way, Ben Feldman's oh, in yeah, it, so uh, Ryan, uh, Ryan Hansen shows up, yeah. Aaron Yu's in it. But what's great about it is a, we see, uh, we see, we get a clear idea of where Jason lives. We see his home. Mm. Um, we, we connect him to his mom in a way that no one had done since the first couple movies in the early eighties you know, massive franchise, something mm -hmm. like 11 movies or something. Yeah, 12, um, 12. But it's what's what's what blew my mind that I did not notice the first time is obviously Jason is the villain. Mm -hmm. He's an enormous guy who is killing people. Got it. Fine. However, <laughs> there is one douchebag in the cast played by Travis Van Winkle, mm -hmm. who is such an unsavory character that the audience has these shifting loyalties of like, wow, I hope they stop Jason. But not before he kills that prick. <laughs> Travis, man, he murdered that role. He is such He's so good. There's not an ounce of like, oh, don't you kind of like me? He no. is just a full on prick for the whole movie. And when he is finally, spoiler alert, when yeah. he is finally dispatched, you're just like, 
Ah, there's like this weight comes off your shoulder. Yeah, absolutely. He's like sold out his girlfriend. He's killed somebody accidentally, but has no remorse. He's a total fucking sociopath <laughs> who doesn't have a dead mom to blame. And so you you have these shifting loyalties yeah. throughout, and and there there is a real tragedy in in Jason's demise at the end. It's, I mean, Jason's never really dead. You yeah, understand, yeah. but um, there's uh, there there is a real sadness. It's the little moment with the locket, yeah. and uh, it all it works really well. It's a it's good work, man. I, I love that you brought up the locket because a lot of times I have to explain. Uh, I'll do Q and A's at, at, at conventions or or whatever, and. Some of the people, their, their argument for the film, like, Jason doesn't take prisoners. Like, why is Jason? That's bull crap. I go, oh, but you, you got to understand. I go, the locket represents, like, his only, the only, imagine the only person loving you in life is your mother who is dead. So when he, he uh, abducts Whitney and doesn't kill her, and I go, the reason behind that, like, let me please explain that. The reason that behind that is that the locket, that she, Whitney looks so much like uh, his mother that it's like- Which oh, is established in the script. Absolutely. So it's that, that that inner turmoil on Jason's part where I talk to the writers about that I'd like to play. I go, it's that turmoil of like, you're the one that murdered my mother. I'm going to destroy you. You are my mother. I love you and need you. That this is the vulnerability. I go, this is his vulnerability. So that the, the torment, like he doesn't know what to do. And so it's kind of a spinning cycle and that that's why he has her there. And people go, oh, I never really thought about that. I go, it, it, you don't have to think about it, but it's just kind of justification for your argument of like, doesn't take prisoners. I go, imagine that. If the only person you loved is gone and nobody else loves you, like that's terrible. It's terrible. No, it, it dimensionalizes the character in a way we haven't seen before. Let's talk about the con circuit mm, a little please. bit. I just broke into it. I just like a schmuck. I just broke into it right before the pandemic because uh, my timing is impeccable. Um, but I had done my first couple and uh, was it was so funny. I was very trepidatious about mm. the process. I was like, what is this going to feel like? Is this going to feel um, like I'm a commodity? And yes, to a certain extent. But I was I what struck me, what I really took away from it was the warmth. Oh, yes, absolutely. Did, did, did I mean, did you enjoy your time there? I'm assuming you'll go back once the uh, this COVID thing has ended. Very much so. I very much enjoyed my time. As I said, I was just really blown away at the sincerity, um, uh, at the enthusiasm, at the the lack of cynicism that permeates that scene. You know, people are just like they dig what they dig and that is it. You know, they will not apologize. It's such a wonderful thing because early on when I got into the con uh, side of things. I was the same thing. I was very trepidatious about going into it, going, ah, I don't know about this. Like, what does this mean? What? And people would, there was a bad stigmatism where, like, oh, that's where older actors go. And like, there's, I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. I go, from what I've learned from myself and what I get from it is I'm not God's gift to anything. Like, I just, I'm, I'm an artist. I, my job in life is to tell stories. And when I go out to meet fans, whatever they, we all have our own lenses and angles of what we like and what we don't like, but someone that I'm a fan of, if they can be cool, if they're ever cool to me, it makes me feel like a million bucks. When a celebrity that I like on 
uh, social media knows I exist and is following me or like messaging me. I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, oh my God. And then you get that adrenaline tingle going like, like a little child going, oh, it's so cool. But we all have that inside of us to a different extent. So going to the, the cons and meeting fans and 99% of the fans are the most lovely down to earth people in the world. And they just want to tell you. So sweet. What, what the, the story that you told means to them. We're like, you know, we used to watch Friday the 13th, you know, my dad and I, every time a, a Friday the 13th would come out, we'd come, we would, we'd watch it. Uh, and that was our thing. We weren't very close, but then, you know, he passed away. So I watch him in the future and you just, all you have to do is just listen and pass that, that again, that volley of energy back and forth. And just, I try to pull what I call the Hollywood curtain of Oz open because there's so much BS, like BS in our business and smoke and mirrors and like people are not being honest about how things go down. And I'm like, man, let me try to tell you how it is. And like, it's like my, the journey that I'm on, I've been so lucky and successful that it could end at any time. And if so, man, what a great run. But if someone's starting off or someone's a fan, like I'll try to share and be vulnerable as much as I can because your journey is going to be different. And I get that opportunity. A lot of times, like not in a bragging sense, I'll have very long lines and I'll constantly apologize to people because I don't want to blast through people. I'll try to spend so many minutes with one person to, to intently listen to what they're saying and once again, uh, because a podcast for actors, this is where the improv pays off tremendously because yes, you don't know what someone's story or what someone's experience when they come over to meet you. Some people are extremely nervous. Some people are terrified. Some people, so you kind of, each person, it's like a, when I go to a con, it's like an, a full day. Once you leave your hotel room, the improv show is on. Not that it's disingenuous, it's not disingenuous, but you have to be able to, to manage people's feelings to make them feel comfortable or to, you know, so they walk away with rather just having that, oh, I signed something. It's an experience to go, hey, we had a moment together and we connected. And so later on in the future, when you watch a film, you see me pop up or whatever. Oh, that's my friend. My friend's on this because I do that when I see friends and I get super excited because then I have a story or a stake in that film that I love because my friends in it, like seeing like for myself, like seeing Steve Agee, who's a close buddy of mine, uh, uh actor. Community. I'm seeing him for coffee tomorrow. No way. I'm seeing Steve for coffee tomorrow. Dude, please give him my love. I love him so much. And seeing him in suicide squad and him for so long working the best, not getting the, the credit or, you know, people applauding his talent as he deserves. Cause he's such a talented, funny dude. And now seeing him in the forefront and the world falling in love with King shark. I'm just like, Oh my God, I love you so much. I'm so happy for this. So I get excited because now I have a, a part in suicide squad because of Steve's doing it. I'm like, Oh, that's my dude. God, I love Steve. Yeah. Steve, I went to my son and I went to go see suicide squad, uh, this past weekend. And, um, uh, not only is it a delight, but he's got a line that's in the trailer that killed in front of the audience. Uh, the um, uh, We got a kaiju up in this bitch yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that was just the place went nuts. It was so great. So great. That's so weird. Yeah, it's a small uh, it's a small world. Um, you mentioned Dan Harmon mm -hmm. and and Rob Schraub. Part of my festival took me to an episode of Community that features a film within the show <laughs> called, Sorry. called Kick Puncher. Yes, sir. 
um, which is a uh, a movie that Troy and Abed watch uh, a sort of an 80s uh, quickie post-apocalyptic action movie that they watch for the sole purpose of making fun of it. How much of Kick Puncher did you shoot? Uh, just those scenes. Like, it's, really? Yeah, 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 man. Like, fans have uh, have clamored that they, they, they want like, hey, do a Kick Puncher movie. Like, you and Schraub should do like a Kick Puncher movie. I go, I will do that tomorrow like if that if that got the okay somewhere it's just so much fun working with those talented geniuses like i admire those yeah. two so much like i i remember meeting rob for the first time uh in milwaukee when i was 17 and we were talking he's like hey i heard you like comic books uh, you know and you draw it oh yeah yeah i do this and he goes can i bring something in to, to show you to get your opinion on like we're doing this first there's a thing called Scud, the Disposable Assassin, which is, you know, this comic book that he was working on. And I go, oh, man, I would love to check it out. Not thinking much of it. Rob brought his, like, lookbook in, that he, things that he was drawing, and my jaw dropped. I go, hey, man, when I said that I draw, yeah, apparently I do not draw because this is the best thing I've seen in the world. And they're just geniuses. And it's so cool that uh, their their heads and hearts, when they moved out here to Los Angeles, they started Channel 101. Are, yeah. are, are you familiar with Channel 101? Yeah, but our listeners might not be. Oh, Go uh, ahead. Channel 101 basically is, is a, a mini film, a, a weekly film festival where this is before YouTube, before uh, anything along the lines of vote for your favorite. But the premise of the entire show that they made up was anybody in the world can make a five minute pilot. Uh, you submit that five-minute pilot to a jury, and the uh, uh, and if you're selected by that jury, uh, there's like 13 or so each weekend or it, once. Sorry, not weekend months. Each month, at the end of the month, uh, this group of people would get together and go to a theater and watch these uh, uh, these five-minute edited together uh, uh, pilots. And if you uh, got chosen, you only you, you vote for the ones that you like, and the top five return the following month uh, and make a, a part two. But if you're not in the top five, you're technically canceled, and you can make something new. Uh, but they right. opened it to the entire world, and uh, uh, and if you were to be chosen to be the top five, that means that you are now the official jury selection that you got to choose what, what you're up against because it's all about creating. You want the best to go against your thing, you, whatever your project is. So it's not an egotistical thing. It's about whatever you think someone is talented um, uh, to, to put forth for the next showing. And the genius behind that was Rob, what blew me away. Rob and Dan were saying that, look, we have a certain perspective on comedy, but that's not a universal perspective. Like we all have different versions of comedy. So why, who are we to say something's not right or not, because it's just different aspects of the genre. So let other people, whoever's in charge, will constantly, you know, the keepers of the gate will constantly change. So it's not just one person's opinion the entire time. And the people that came for there, there was no money involved for it. It was just the joy of creating. The the other premise that I remember Rob announcing or saying when I asked him, like, like why, why did you create this? And he goes, everyone moves to Los Angeles with their skill set or aspirations and they wait. They're like, wait, when Sony, I really want to do a pirate movie, but I got to wait till Sony calls me and either I audition or I write it or I direct it. And he's like, why are you waiting? Do it now. And so people would do it on a no budget. But the people that the, the celebrities now that have come out of that sh show, I, it's such a wild thing. Like seeing like, uh, like, like Jack Black was doing stuff for free. Uh, uh, Sarah Silverman, uh, the Lonely Island before they were known for being Lonely Island. 
It's just so uh, just. That's right. They were doing a they were doing a soap called the the Boo. Yeah, from right? Malibu. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's right. I remember that. It's funny because I when people talk about the Rick and Morty, loving Rick and Morty so much, I'm like, oh, you guys, you don't understand. I go like, it was originally like as a as a goof like uh, Doc and Marty, and it Justin's you know crude drawings funnier than hell. But he later on teamed up with Dan and then redid this thing for for Rick and Morty and it just blew up. And it blows my mind going to like talk about acting at colleges or, or a school and you see kids like wearing the shirts and like, you know, singing the Lonely Island songs. And you're like, that's my friend group back in the day. And it's, oh my God, they're influencing society with their art. And the idea is that it's not just that friend group, it's everybody's invited. Like, dude, if you want to try something, try it. And also, if you make a pilot and it's not so good or it doesn't get selected, keep going. I've seen people submit like five, 10 pilots, not work, and then want that each time they get better and better. And then all of a sudden they just take off. Now they dominate whatever it is, you know, the type of show that they're doing. I just, it's such a cool creative outlet. You've mentioned the waiting that comes with uh, living in Los Angeles, um, which we've we've all had a taste of in the past eighteen months. Was there a role that that got away from you that you were like, ah, oh, man, that would have been awesome? <laughs> uh, not not offhand, not directly got away because I'm also like we said before. I'm like, man, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. Like, let me know. But uh, early on in my career, I was uh, so green and new. At one point, I auditioned for uh, Charlie's Angels f- uh, uh, for the role of the Thin Man, uh, which was played a brilliant Crispin by Glover Crispin with. Glover. Yes, yes, yes. Right, right. And uh, I didn't know as Crispin Glover. I was so uh, uh, new to some of the uh, aspects of the business at that time. When the uh, I remember the casting director calling back and going like, "Hey, um, how would you feel about working like eight hours a day martial arts with like Wu Ping?" And my background, which we hadn't talked about, was martial arts. I, I trained like back in Bakersfield and like taught. I've taught through years. Really? Yeah. Um, so that helped a lot on the stunt side of things as well, learning body control. And but sure. they were like, hmm, hmm. And my as a they would at the time, it would have been the biggest thing I've ever done. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I can I go, look, this there has to be an offer out to somebody else. Like, I think I'm just a backup. If that person says no, I just, oh, I don't know. And then, you know, didn't hear anything. And I, I then I found out, you know, my agents found out that they they cast Crispin Glover. And I go, Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's a great choice. Like that's yeah. That's that's who I would cast. I would cast him over me because he he would be the the the, the eccentricity that that he brings to a role. I'm like that's the dude. Um, but yeah, so that one would be probably be my answer for the thin man from um, from Charlie's Angels. That's wild. That would have been. I, I mean, the only thing. Uh, you know, the role is the role, whatever, but the Wu Ping of it all would have been oh. pretty awesome. I mean, this is the guy who who worked in Hong Kong for years before he he did the Matrix. Yeah. And he is he is the leading martial arts coordinator in the world. He is like there's everyone jockeys for second place. Basically, that's wild. What kind of martial arts did you study? Uh, I started off doing like family, uh, uh, like Taekwondo and Goju Karate. Uh, when I moved to Los Angeles, I started training. um was submission fighting like with some of the UFC guys like like uh, Gene LaBelle, uh Gokor Savicien doing um 
uh, grappling, uh, which is like it's 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 a such a mixture of like Brazilian jiu-jitsu, uh, sambo, uh, Armenian jiu-jitsu. Uh, but through the years uh, after that, I went and started training with um, uh, Big John McCarthy from uh, the referee from UFC. The oh, big okay. uh, giant guy, nicest human being. But I, he had a place up in Santa Clarita and started training with him. But I always say I'm a hobbyist because I have friends who, you know, we, we would prep fighters and like, you know, we'd fight and I would, you know, oh, I'd come home like two swollen clothes, black eyes. And like my, my wife at the time was like, what are you? what are you doing? You're an actor. You make your living with your face. So yeah, but I caught two knees and so I couldn't see straight, but my lips are a little numb right now, but yeah, it's so much fun. And she's like, Oh Jesus. But um, like I said, I never want to come off as a tough guy. Cause I always say I'm a hobbyist because I have so much respect for any guys that get in that cage and put it all on the line. Just hats off to you. For me, if everything ever went sour, I like, would tap, you know, okay, I'm good. Okay. And, you know, because we're trying to get better as, <laughs> as athletes and people would stop, fortunately. What um, I want to talk about, about Swamp Thing, which um, I, I really, really enjoyed. Oh. I watched a bunch of them and it's, it, it's, it's a weirdly beautiful show with an amazing cast um, what is that audition process like? Because he does get to speak. Yes, 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 absolutely. Um, he does get to speak a little bit, um, but uh, but in a, in a limited fashion. Let me talk about the suit for sure. a moment. Um, uh, the how much mobility do you have with those prosthetics? Uh, I tell you, over the years, the different prosthetic pieces of art that I'm so fortunate to wear. This is the best thing that I have ever worn my entire career. The way that it, a lot of times when you're wearing prosthetics, you kind of have to kind of reset your 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 emotion levels and your expression levels. Where you'd have to look into a mirror and go through different emotions, you know, to see what the reaction is. Because in your brain, it could be one thing, but coming out on camera, it could be it's gonna be limited. Yeah, depending on what you're wearing. But it was so the pieces were so well thought out and malleable that I didn't have to do much at all. Um, it is difficult wearing the suit uh, because you're it, originally it was supposed to be four hours every day before you start work to get into it. But uh, the, the talented guys over at Fractured Effects, they got it down to two hours a day, thank goodness, which is amazing. Uh, but the, the suit itself, it, it's such a different world because it requires there's a physical stamina to it because you have to train and be ready for it because you know you're not going to be comfortable there's a, there's an old adage for for TV and film that uh pain is temporary TV and film are forever so you're like right. it's going to be tough but one thing that I um cuz uh I don't know how far you watch the series later on in the series he develops he starts talking more and more each episode because he's learning how yeah. to talk and by the end he's just talking it's a you know normal like everyone else or the all, all the other cast but there there there's something that I learned on the show um, you're dealing with the heat factor where you're, you're overheating the suit and, you know, but there are certain aspects to the character where he's dealing with an existential crisis and you're dealing with this mania day after day when you're hopping into being manic and trying to figure out what he is and what he's dealing with that physically your body doesn't know the difference because we're emotionally lying to it for what they're going through. And at one point, I was talking to my wife. Uh, I, we were filming in North Carolina, and she's an actress here in Los Angeles. And she's like, "How are you doing?" I go, "Well, I did four days in a row, and physically, I'm 
exhausted. I go, but mentally I go, I feel like I'm falling through this black, thick void and I'm just reaching out to try to grab a tree branch or something for stability, like mentally kind of spiraling. And she started laughing and I'm like, huh? What? What's so funny? And she goes, sweetheart, she goes, you've been playing manic for so many days that it's starting to, to seep into your normal life. And I'm like, oh my God. Like normally I do that for other actor friends going like, hey man. And I, I but I couldn't see from her perspective. And when you're doing scenes being manic, that's emotionally, emotionally draining as it is. But when you're locked inside this creature suit and doing those emotional scenes, it is bonkers. Like you, when you have, like, there's nowhere for that, that, that heat and energy to go. So you're kind of boiling in that suit and you're trying to lower your heart rate. Uh, there's times like when there's scenes, um, I don't know how far you got, there's scenes where I'm bawling in the Swamp yeah. Thing suit and I have these giant, what they're called, sclero lenses, which people go, oh, they're contact lenses. They go, oh, no, no, they're not normal contact lenses. They're thicker than normal lenses uh, and they're like half your eye. Yeah. They cover the whole ball, yeah. Absolutely. So it's brutal. I, I was not to toot my own horn. At one point, uh, Nikki Harris, my contact lens uh, uh, expert, uh, she goes, "Hey, I, I want to." I was really impressed. I go, of "That scene." I go, "What do you mean?" She goes, "Well, you're talking about in the scene, like you know, you're hitting these emotional levels, and you know, you you might cry." And she goes, "When you were bawling, she goes, a lot of times with scaleros, there's nowhere for the tears to come out unless you have a lot of tears." And she goes. You, that was coming out. Just I'm assuming right now because of the salt and the tears, your your eyes feel like there's tiny little glass shards all inside your eyes. I go absolutely. She goes, oh, okay, mm. <laughs> mission accomplished then, Derek. Go, oh, thanks, thanks a lot. So it's it's it, I, I wasn't expecting that for some of the uh, the higher emotional scenes, but um, I'm so happy how that show turned out. It's one of those uh, uh, to continue on the topic as an actor. I'm sure you can understand where. It's how you think Hollywood is going to be before you join Hollywood, where going back to that team aspect, uh, the James Wan, uh, uh, who was the producer in his, his uh, Atomic Monster, the production company, I love them so much because they created a safe playground for all of us to play in. And they respected everybody on set from the PA up to the main producer. Everyone was treated with respect and everyone was heard. And we were allowed to express ourselves for, for what it is we were doing. And we, the, the cast, I have never worked with a, a better group of good human beings who were all on the same page. And we all thought, we all felt it knew at the time, we have something special here. Like everyone's bringing their A game to this to the show we're playing it like it's a checkoff play and no one is yeah. no one is backing off but also in a sense for actors who are stage actors and not uh tv and film actors yet or haven't experienced it yet it's such a wild thing to to try to figure out a, a, a genre and a tone or a theme to what's going on to a film that's never been done before even though it's written and to have everybody instinctually be on the same page for it because with with do, when you're doing theater, you're rehearsing with everybody of the group day after day, and you can see what people are doing. Oh, if he's hitting this level, I can go to a higher level here to set him up for his next peak, and working as a team. Mm -hmm. But you know what everyone's doing. But here, we didn't know what each other were doing in our own scenes because so if we didn't have a scene together, and, and so it was so cool to come together 
cast and crew to have everyone excited on days off. People would want to come in and hang out. Uh, we hung out, uh, uh, Virginia Madsen, who is the, the, our, our, our matriarch of, of the group. She set up this beautiful mm-hmm. thing where she goes every Sunday, my house is open to you guys to come and hang out and decompress to have like a safe haven to kind of like, just to, to get that sense of family. Cause we all know with our business things that we have our own personal ups and downs and other business deals going on where it's just like come and just exist. And so the, it was like the, like the main cast and guest stars who would come in who were treated like the main cast were like, Hey, look, the, like one of the guest stars, like, why are you treating us so nice? Like, like you're treating us like a main cast. And I go, we're all on the same man. Like when this is down, we're all back to auditioning again. We're just lucky to have a job right now. So like, please, like, what can yeah. we do to help? But the most beneficial thing that I learned from it was, because she's such a, a veteran and such a brilliant woman, she would have, when we have guest directors come in, uh, she would invite him on Sundays to come over and hang out with us. So we would meet the directors. And uh, as an actor, I could figure out by talking to them, since directors approach things differently where one could be more visual, one's more uh, like experimental, one's more uh, uh, is looking for the parables or looking for the symbolism in the scenes. So you could figure out what their perspective was and tying back into the improv, being able to adapt going, oh, you're very visual. You're not getting into the emotions or the subtext of what's going on in the scene, but you're directing very visually. So my job, I'm switching now to switch, let you do the visuals. I'm going to focus more on bringing in what my character is experiencing and my arc. And fo- even though you don't technically know what my arc is because you're coming in as a director, a lot of times, sometimes they don't know, you know, what has going to happen before them. And we set up this environment to just make them feel comfortable so they could be the best artists they could be. And it was, I tell you, John, it was the best thing that I've worked on because that's what I've always wanted where we were a team, everyone respect each other's for our strengths and weaknesses. And if somebody had a weakness, we would help each other out. There was no weak link in the cast. I get so much pride when people enjoy the film or the, the TV show, or I should say series now. I get so much pride because I'm like, that's my family. When someone's like, oh, Kevin Duran, you know, did so great in that scene. And this, I went, ah, oh, yeah, right. He murdered it. Like I, I'm watching it. I knew it was going to happen. And I'm watching at home crying because of the emotions yeah. that he's playing. What I love that you, you mentioned, I don't think people fully grasp this is how 95% of TV directors are hired yeah. guns coming in high stakes temp work, um, hopping onto a moving train and then conducting yeah. it. Uh, and, and to have a Sunday to kind of get to know everybody mm-hmm. is invaluable for something like that because they're dealing now, the best of them have learned to cope, but some of them come in with like this, this wall of insecurity mm-hmm. that you've got to work around and that's going to manifest itself any number of ways. Not all of them. Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, and, and so it, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's not the, they are the, <laughs> They're the the last word in the short term, but they have a bunch of gods they have to answer to. Um, I'm glad you brought that up. So who were some character actors that you liked uh, as you were coming up that you would kind of your eyes would be drawn to the corner of the screen? Be like, wait a second, that guy, who's that guy? I like him. From the old school, like you know, a lot of the the classic horror monster actors, like the Universal actor, like like Boris Karloff or Vincent Price. I'm like, ah, oh, so cool. Um 
in the uh, uh, then later on, I gravitated like I'm I, I'm such a fan of like Clancy Brown. I love Clancy and he's Brown. He's such a nice human being and so humble. Yeah. I, I was able to work with him on a show, and just lovely. And I, I really applaud my my pal uh, Doug Jones. Uh, oh yeah, Doug and I've been friends from the '90s, and it, it's it's being that we we're kind of both in the same aspect where we bounce between our normal face and also known for wearing prosthetic and playing characters where you can't see our face. Uh-huh. We have the same mindset mm-hmm. about so many things, and I'm so happy to see that he's so talented and that he's being respected. So he's kind of paving the way uh, for for vocabulary in Hollywood because before. What would happen if you were just a, a prosthetic? Oh, you're a suit actor. Or you're a prosthetic actor. Like you're not an actor. And you're like, I am professionally. I I have done this for over twenty years. Like, what are you talking about? And so it's it's that weird. Like they 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 didn't know how to kind of categorize. But now, like because of Doug and people like, like Andy Circus going, and they're like, oh, even though you sometimes you don't have dialogue, we don't see your face. This is what you bring to the table. So they're able to have a reference point. They go, oh, you're a more muscular, scarier version of Doug or this or that. I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> we get that. And so now it was kind of a chip on the shoulder. Right? You have to fight for that. Because I have a big thing about respect that I had to fight for that, you know, early on. But now since I'm more established and people understand and that the perception is changing, it's been so much easier because there are times where I would be at a producer session and like the producer might not be a nice person. Like, yeah, we, uh, we need a big guy, a tall guy with a mask. And I go, Hey man, thank you so much for your time. You know, happy to see you. You know, I'm not, I, I, like, wait, wait, are you, are you leaving? I go, Oh, I'm, I'm not right for this. Like, Oh, if this is what your mentality is going in right now, where everything is, you know, kosher, when you are three weeks into the film, my first layer of skin on my face is gone and I'm busting my ass, you know, trying to make your product the best thing possible. If that respect's not there, we're not a, we're not a match. I can go somewhere else, you know, so where we can work together as a team for a, a co- row the boat in the same direction for a common goal. And if you're just big guy with a mask, mm-hmm. I don't want to work on this project. And, and the, it this, but now I'm so lucky again, because of Doug, he is now in, in my opinion, given a vocabulary to Hollywood of what it is to, to be a, a, a modern, you know, a, a, a monster actor in a sense. Well, you've both gotten a chance to show some some incredible versatility. Did you see him on uh, What We Do in oh, the Shadows? Yes, that talented. God, I, I was watching that. I was like, this guy is. I didn't. I obviously didn't recognize him. I had to look him up. But I, I, I was like, whoever this genius is who is landing all the jokes under six pounds yeah. of latex is is just because doing comedy in those circumstances is wild. Yeah. But God, I I loved his work there. What I'm noticing is this theme in your career that comes back to was it Sam Christensen you mentioned earlier? Yeah, absolutely, Sam Christensen Studios. Yeah, the the sense of finding your Jungian archetype, but then exploring every possible aspect of it. So you're you've got what you do very well, but you're also able to diversify it. Do you think that's a fair way? Yeah, to Yeah, ab- absolutely. Up well, Derek it's it's Mears? playing the, the different aspects also because like uh, like everything has an has an opposite effect. Where if someone is incredibly funny and energetic, uh, on the opposite side of that radio dial can be annoying and you know it, it intrusive. Where you're like, oh, so you learn to play the opposites of yourself. But it's just understanding who you are and your essences and what story you're supposed to tell. Um, I remember Sam told a story at one point 
uh, uh, where he had this, uh, it was the first class. Nobody had done any work at all. And he just randomly grabbed, a, 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 he goes, you in the front row, come, come sit up in the front and face the class. And she would sit in front of the class and he goes, okay, with a show of hands, he goes, we're talking about, you know, first impressions or, or vibes we get off people. And he goes, without her saying a word, raise your hand if, you know, you think one of her essences might be uh, first in the pool, last out of the pool, you know, and some people raised their hands uh, and some didn't. And uh, uh, and how many people think uh, that she's like, uh, sits at desk, everything is in its place. And some other people raised their hands and he noticed that she started to cry because uh, a lot more people raised their hands for that. And he's like, Wait, 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 I'm going to stop. Wait, what's what's going on? She goes, I'm so sorry. She goes, I'm actually an, an, an Olympic medalist swimmer. I love the pool. Like, he, he didn't know this. And she goes, I, that's, my life is being in the water. And she goes, I, but people, it's hard for them to see me that way. She goes, I've been to auditions. We're not supposed to bring our medals to anything, but I've gotten to the point. I've brought just trying to get work. And Sam looked at her and he goes, do this. Before we go into all the class and we break everything down for you, because Sam had such as this mentor, uh, uh, safe Santa Claus uh, uh, warmth to him, where he goes, I want you to hang after class. And he goes, I, I want you to go to your, your, uh, your agent and tell her right now, only, don't send you out for any more Olympic, any swimming into this. Go, uh, I want you to send out for, for desk, you know, like, like the, the, Everything's in order, like the, the the that type of archetype of person where it's they're in control, they they know what's coming next, they're they're very organized, that kind of organized mentality, and so, so apparently she did, and uh, a month later uh, she came back and she uh, and he goes hey how's everything going and she was just like flabbergasted, uh, she had booked three jobs because of that three jobs in a month and she hadn't worked at all before that because it's just kind of tuning into who you are like for myself like I'm such like a, a I I'm opposite than kind of what I look like and because of Sam's owning on the, the the tough guy thing I went oh when I walk into a room I don't need to do anything I can just be myself and I don't have to turn up if there's a role where it has to be tough or angry because you'll see guys who will make look how tough I am make the tough guy face and like What'd you say, bro? I, I could wear lipsticks, wear a tutu, you know, and dance on some ice cream. And that toughness is going to come through. So you learn to trust that. And this guy has changed so many people's lives. And I'm very, very grateful for him. Derek Mears, it has been so great to get to know who you are. Man, John, I can't thank you enough. Like, I love that we have so many of the same friends that we haven't ever met personally before. Like That makes no sense. That makes no sense. And that is an episode wrap on Derek Mears. You can follow him at Derek Mears on Twitter and Instagram. And you should. Forever Dog. Household Faces is a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by John Ross Bowie, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Produced by Ben Blacker. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Until next time, when's lunch? Pew, pew, pew.